It's Guy's Guy Radio. Here's your host, Robert Manny. All right, welcome to Guy's Guy's Radio. This is your host, Robert Manny, welcoming you to the show where men and women can be at their best and everyone wins Guy's Guy's Radio. I bring you information for you to consider, for you to think about, for you to maybe feel something for, and then maybe you'll do something about it. Maybe you'll take some action. Guys, Guys Radio. We have all types of different guests that I bring on, and they're all for your benefit, the benefit of my listeners. And I cull through a lot of different people because I just want to bring the best of the best with some interesting info for you because I know how busy everybody is. So this week, we've got a very special guest. His name is Mark a. Altman, and he's written a book with his writing partner, Edward Gross, and it's called Nobody Does It Better, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of James Bond. So it's this huge tome, it's like 700 pages, and it's all snippets from all the different people who worked on and around and in the whole entire package of James Bond films, and it's really fantastic, and I thought it would be pretty timely because No Time to Die, the the last Bond film with Daniel Craig, is going to be out, and uh, this is a perfect time to get this information out there, and I think the book's going to do very well because it was a lot of fun to read. It's one of those books where you don't have to read it from page one through it. You can just kind of pick around and read some of the quotes from some of the people, and it's really interesting stuff. And it's not just surface. It really gets into, you know, the whole Bond thing. So I'm going to be talking to Mark about all the different actors who played Bond, the Bond villains, the Bond girls, the music, the whole thing. And it's going to be a lot of fun. So that's our, uh, what we have coming up on Guys Guys Radio today. Let me do a little riffing before we start the show, though, and our interview. Um, A couple of things. I started a new segment uh, called Brushes with Fame, just the regular guys, guys, brushes with fame. So in my time living in New York City and working in advertising, I ran into a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, people who were celebrities, if you will. And just in my day-to-day life, not having to do with advertising, I ran into people. And sometimes it was in New York, but sometimes in other parts of the world. So I just have been one of these people who runs into other people. And, it's been, and they've been very random. So I'm going to talk about two of them today. Um, number one. Rudy Giuliani. Now, I've been to events with Rudy Giuliani when he was mayor, uh, when I worked uh, in a distilled spirit business uh, on Stolich Nye and Bombay Sapphire, and he used to come to a lot of different events, and we had uh, also some events at uh, some of the cigar clubs, and he's a big cigar smoker. But anyhow, after his terms as, as mayor, and before he got involved with the whole Trump thing going on in the Ukraine, I was around the corner from my apartment in Harlem a couple of years ago, and Rudy was not in the news. And I'm just walking down the street, and all of a sudden, there's this guy standing there, two guys. And the one guy, I look at him, and he looks at me, and he breaks out this huge smile and waves at me. And I look, and it's Rudy Giuliani. And I'm like, it was just us, the three of us there. I'm like, hello, Mayor Giuliani. And that was it. And I kept walking. I'm like, what is he doing here? And why is he looking at me and smiling? Was he campaigning for one person? I don't know. But it was a weird brush with fame. And I, I didn't stop to talk to him or anything. I, I, I just was like, I was on my way someplace. I'm like, okay, Giuliani got it. And that's how New Yorkers are. N- nothing really phases them. So that's one. But he did have a smile on his face. I'll say that. I'll give you the flip side of that. And, you know, Everybody gets in different moods. We're all, we all have our days and our times where maybe we don't feel like interacting with people. But 
one time I was on an ad shoot and I was out in LA and uh, I was at the Lowe's Hotel, I believe, in uh, Santa Monica. And I was going out to get a cab. So I was standing right on the right outside and there was one person with me standing next to me and it was Sean Penn. And Sean Penn, he's, he's pretty diminutive. He's not a tall guy. And I looked at him, it was just the two of us. So I figured, hey, you know, I always say hello to anybody if I see somebody that's recognizable like that. So I said, hey, Sean, how are you? I, like you, I love your work. And he, he actually kind of backed up and his face became kind of twisted and contorted and very uncomfortable. And he looked at me and he didn't say anything. And I'm like, all right, whatever. Maybe he's, uh, he's has his mind on something, whatever. But so we waited kind of, uh, it was a little bit uh, unsettling standing there with him until uh, my cab came and then his car, I guess, whatever. But uh, that was my other brush with fame for this week. Sean Penn. So anyhow, what else is going on? Well, uh, we've passed our 400th show. I'm still here in San Diego, California after many years in New York City. I'm having a blast and, uh, and all things are good. So anyhow, Guys Guys Radio, our special guest, Mark Altman. It's Guys Guy Radio. We're back on Guys Guys Radio. As I mentioned, we've got a very special guest. His name is Mark Altman. He's written a book about James Bond. Bond, James Bond's called Nobody Does It Better. And we're going to get into that in a moment. I just want to uh, remind everybody that there's the last Bond movie with Daniel Craig is coming out. And it's supposedly spectacular. And it's like almost three hours long. And I heard it's great. And uh, so everybody's anticipating that. But in the meantime, our special guest, Mark Altman, he is a TV showrunner, so he helps make TV shows happen. He's also a film and television writer-producer who most recently co-executive produced the TNT hit series. I hope you guys have seen it. It's it's very good. It's called The Librarians. He also previously co-authored The 50-Year Mission, Vampires and Slayers, Slayers and Vampires, rather, and So Say We All with his writing partner, Edward Gross. Slayers and Vampires is about the TV business, and So Say We All is about Battlestar Galactica. And so Mark's a cool guy. He's from uh, the East Coast. He's out in California now. And I'm so thrilled because this book, it's a, it's a big book. It's a 700 pages long. I, I flipped through it. It's an oral history, and it's a lot of fun. It's got everybody's opinion on Bond. All the players are in there, and it's really great job. And I can't wait to get started with our special guest on Guys Guys Radio, Mark Altman. Welcome, Mark. How are you? I'm great, Robert. Thanks for having me on the show. I always like talking about Bond, James Bond. Let's start at the beginning. So you were obviously a true Bond aficionado, and I know your favorite movie is A Spy Who Loved Me, and I just watched that with my wife the other day, and you know what? It was fantastic, and we'll get into that, but what um, what originally drew you to Bond and uh, to the point where you wanted to build a 700-page book about him? Well, look, I want to I, I want to just clarify because my favorite Bond movie is from Russia with Love. I love my favorite Roger Moore movie is okay. Spy Love Me. Okay. So, um, but okay. I, you know, I love Spy Love Me. But it, it goes to your question, which is a great question. You know, I grew up in the '70s in Brooklyn and loved um, uh, you know a lot of genre stuff. My parents took me to see The Man with the Golden Gun. Arguably, not one of the better James Bond movies, but I fell in love with Bond movies. It was just 
you know, globe trotting. There was what's now called James Bond Island. Um, you know, I, it's you know, stunning. These stunning play- Christopher Lee as the villain who charged a million a shot. You know, it, it was it captured my imagination. Even though now it's probably one of my least favorite Bond movies. And you know, uh, a couple years later, Spy Who Loved Me comes out in the summer of 1977 and absolutely blew me away. You know, submarine cars, a giant you know villain with a base that comes up from under the water. Barbara Bach in you know bikini. I mean, it was amazing. I mean, it was like it was my gateway drug in the bond. And, uh, you know, I just from that point on, I mean, I could get my hands on the Ian Fleming novels. You know, later on, it would be uh, Stephen Rubin's The James Bond Films book. And there was, of course, um, The Bedside Companion by Raymond Benson. So I just fell in love with Bond movies. I've always loved them. And, um, you know, every time I do one of these oral histories, I, I'm always say to Ed, uh, I said, I'm done. This is my last one. You know, I'm done. And uh, we finished our last book on Battlestar Galactic. I said, hey, it's been a great run, Ed, but I'm done. And he's like, well, we got to do another one. I'm like, well, there's nothing else left to write about that I'm interested in. Well, of course, maybe James Bond, but we're not going to. And he, he, (laughs) without telling me, went to our agent and she said, oh, Mark wants to do it. Mark wants to do a James Bond book sold like that. And then all of a sudden I found myself writing a James Bond book. And I'm thrilled because it was a really great experience. Probably my favorite of the books. So what what is it about James Bond? Why do we love him? We know he he's 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 a, he's a paid assassin. He's got a lot of flaws. He's a womanizer. He's he's you know totally uh, anti me too uh, right now. Even though when the series began, it wasn't the same issue, if if you will. Uh, but he, you know he this is a flawed guy. Is that why we love him? What is, what is it about James Bond? I know he came out of England at a time where things were very dreary back there, and yes. he represented kind of their flashy, more sophisticated bountiful past if you will but what what is it that has made him such an enduring character that everybody loves and connects with so much well you know i mean that's a good question i mean what's the old expression the sun never sets on the british empire of course right. it did so their connection to the past to the the glory days of uh of of, of england or you know james bond where he's still at the center of the world and in the center of the action um so to speak and i think one of the things that really appealed to people, you certainly look at the '60s when um, you know air travel wasn't as ubiquitous. People didn't have, uh, you know, really didn't travel as much. So it was a way to experience the world, whether it was Istanbul or Jamaica, the Bahamas, and it was amazing because he was going to all these great places. He was drinking. He was, you know, hooking up with all these beautiful women. So uh, I mean, what wasn't the like? I mean, there's that old expression, you know, men wanted to be him and women wanted to be with him. And I, I think mm-hmm. as for that is still the appeal of James Bond. You know, even though he may be rough around the edges and he's very damaged and, you know, certainly he's, you know, a character in a great deal of pain and there's a huge amount of darkness uh, in, in that character. But still, there's something very appealing about the quote unquote James Bond lifestyle. He stays in the best hotels. He drives the best cars. He, you know, he he always seems to have whatever money he needs. You know, there, there's something very appealing. And at the end of the day, he does the right thing, uh, you know, and, and is uh, bringing down these supervillains. And uh, uh, I think that's one of the things that people really, you know, adore about Bond. I mean, I, I would say it's certainly one of the things I think attracted me to the character. Good answer. Um, Let's talk a little bit about uh, the books versus the movies, because I had a real eye opener. I'd seen all the movies and then I went back and I picked up a copy of Casino Royale and I read it and I was like, wow, this guy can write. Number one, I thought Ian Fleming's terrific writer and, and some people don't consider him but I, I, that. But I really was turned on by his writing. And then I got into His Majesty's Secret Service and I started reading the books in the order of what, how they were rated as books. 
Tell us a little bit about your experience reading the books, Mark, and also how do you think um, the process went translating the books to the movies? Because some of the books uh, Ian Fleming wouldn't allow, I think, I don't know which one it was. Spy Love Me, he wouldn't Spy allow. Spy Love Me, he wouldn't allow that plot to go into the movie for, maybe you can explain why. And then also, I think at the end when he wrote Octopussy and then, uh, I don't know if it was You Only Live Twice, where they were short stories. Yes. So tell us a little bit about the, the, the dynamic between the books and the movies. Well, yeah, I mean, the thing that's interesting about Spy Love Me was it was told in a very unique um, format. There are three sections to that book, you know, her, him, and them. And so it really is told from the perspective of this woman who is, is, is kidnapped by these thugs. And then James Bond shows up at this hotel. It's very, you know, it breaks format. It's very untraditional. It was not particularly successful, although it's actually a very good book. Um, and, um, as a result, Ian Fleming said, you can have the title, but you can't keep the, uh, um, you can't do anything in the story. Although the character of Jaws and also the character of the other henchmen, um, are, are loosely based on the characters in, um, in that, in that book. So it's not a hundred percent true that they didn't use anything. It definitely was an inspiration to a certain extent. But what you see early on is that there's a faithfulness to the books that starts to go away by the time the Bond movies start to get bigger and more epic, you know, by, you know, by the time you get to, you only live twice, they start really discarding the book. There's not a lot there. Um, you know, and, and the honor majesty secret service goes back using the, it's probably the most faithful of all the, uh, mm -hmm. adaptations. And then, you know, starting with diamonds are forever. It's a free for all. It's like, you know, maybe they can take a scene, you know, for your eyes only has a scene from live and let die. And it has a right. scene from, uh, you know, but th there's not a lot, and and they use the titles, but you know, Moonraker obviously, uh, it, it, when it was written, it it was so you know by the time they make it in 1979, it, it, there's nothing about it that would be feel groundbreaking or fresh or modern. So I'm um, completely um, something different. But you know, I really enjoy the books. I actually feel like it'd be really interesting to see Netflix or somebody do um, an adaptation of the books, like the James Bond. Um, you know, uh, it's set in the 60s and do faithful adaptations mm -hmm. of the books. Not that they would necessarily be better than the movies, be really interesting. That's a, that is a great, a great idea. I would yeah. watch that. And I think lots of people would be interested in that because the books are fantastic and this, the writing is very good. There's the whole, you know, what does the main character want? Why can't he get it? The Bond, let, let's get on to Bond a little bit because this is a character, when you read the books, you don't really know that much about him, kind of the backstory, or not the backstory, about who he's like inside. It's more through his actions, and he seems kind of like this rough, ruddy kind of guy. Um, yet he has been interpreted by, I don't know if it's five or six different actors, where you had Connery did five, and then you had Lanzaby, who was the one and done, and then that led to more. He started with Spy, who loved me, and then you went Dalton, Bronson, and Craig. And they all, to me, uh, having read the books, the, they all had a different aspect. For me, and I'd love to get your opinion on this whole this whole Bond character, as well as your favorite, I like, uh, I thought he looked like Dalton in the book, but he acted like Craig. What's mm. your take? Yeah, it's so funny because every time there's a new Bond, they always say, this is faith, the most faithful to, um, <laughs> you know, Ian Fleming. I mean, I love all the interviews at the time, you know, when Roger Moore was cast. Well, this is really James Bond, you know, and, and you see it every time they can. And there was Timothy Dalton. This is the faithful adaptation that, you know, Ian Fleming. And but I, I think you kind of nailed it. I mean, I think, in, you know, if you really look at it, um, you know, Dalton had read the books that he used them as his Bible, you know. 
um, Craig, uh, you know, although not necessarily physically, um, but in terms of the performance is very similar to what, you know, Ian Fleming describes. Um, you know, people forget, I mean, Sean Connery, who is my favorite Bond, is not necessarily, you know, Ian Fleming didn't love the casting of, of, of Sean Connery and he came to appreciate him. But he really is, you know, Terrence Young, the director's idea of what James Bond is. I mean, he created James Bond in a sense by teaching Sean Connery how to move, how to eat, you know, how to order the best wines, how to dress, you know, and, and it was like a weird, perverse version, not perverted, but perverse version of like My Fair Lady. Terrence Young sort of minted, you know, con- uh, you know, Bond out of Connery. Connery was like this clay that he sculpted because, you know, he was a blue collar bodybuilder, you know, he was Jack LaLanne, you know, and it was uh, Terrence Young that turned Sean Connery into what he became, which is this movie icon, this legend, you know, this amazing, amazing role. And then I, what I love about, you know, look, and I, like a lot of people really love Honor Majesty's Secret Service and, and, and you know, don't bag on Lazenby. The biggest problem Lazenby had was they were trying to do Sean Connery light and who's right. can capture that kind of charisma. So what I love about Roger Moore is they didn't try and cast someone who was another Sean Connery. They went in a completely different direction. And, you know, what Roger Moore did is super fun in the, and it was so super suited for the 70s, light fun over the top a little campy you know and then you get to timothy dalton and the pendulum swings back to a more edgy darker gritty kind of james bond and the same thing happens again pierce is more in the roger moore vein and then swings back with daniel craig again to you know the connery dalton vein it's very interesting it's a self-correcting franchise they always know where they go too far and then they manage to sort of you know sort of do a chiropractic adjustment to where it needs to be so you can go from moonraker to furies only or you can go from the dreadful die another day to casino royale i mean it's 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 really remarkable you know how um uh, the franchise manages to know when it's gone too far and make that right turn back and get back on the track guys guys radio your host robert manny with our special guest the writer mark a altman uh, his writing partner is Edward Gross. Uh, Nobody Does It Better, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of James Bond. So I remember Q in the book, in your book, says that people, uh, their favorite James Bonds are usually the one they saw first. Right. Do you, you agree with that? I, I think it's true. What do you think? I, I think there's a truth to that. I mean, I say the same thing about Star Trek. You know, a lot of times your favorite right. captain is the one you grew up on. Right. right? So um, I think there's a truth to it. I mean, I have to say, I mean, Roger Moore was the first Bond I ever saw, but Sean Connery is my favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think largely that's true. You see it particularly with millennials who, who grew up either watching Pierce or Daniel. Those are his fa- their favorites. Whereas, you know, someone like us, it's going to be Sean Connery or, or Roger Moore. So um, I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, you know, and it, also their favorite Bond movies. Like, I mean, I think of you to a kill is an absolute abomination. You know, it's awful. But, um, you know, for a lot of people, um, you know, in sort of that uh, uh, generation Y, they kind of, that was their first movie and they love right. it. You know, that was their first Bond movie and they just think, oh, if you do a kill of the cat's pajamas. That they? was Christopher Walken and, um, and Grace, Grace Jones, Jones. Yeah. And, uh, and Patrick McNee. Yeah. Yeah. And Duran so, Duran. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so it seemed to me that, you know, having watched A Spy Who Loved Me uh, the other night, I was like, wow, he really took a step. He he really seamlessly more got into the role and he didn't go off like he did in like Octopussy and some of the others. Was that a, uh, purposely done like as a first step? He had the, you know, he followed Lansby and then he steps into the role and it seemed like a 
pretty prototypical James Bond movie in the Sean Connery mode, with a little twist, a little more wink of the eye. But he wasn't uh, pastiche as he kind of got further down the line. Does that make sense? Yeah, because I mean, it's interesting because if you look at you know Sean Connery, most people would say his third film was his best, his Goldfinger, where he really nails it, right? And it was kind of with Roger Moore. It was his third film where he really nails it. Um, I think you know it's interesting because Living Not Die did well. Man with the Golden Gun did not do well, not particularly well. And they knew the franchise. It looked cheap. It felt cheap. Um, Broccoli and Saltzman were sort of having their divorce, you know, the professional divorce. And, um, you know, when uh, Broccoli had the franchise, they knew they had to go big. And so they take all the huge epic set pieces of something like You Only Live Twice with the, you know, underwater base and the submarine car. And they throw everything at this movie. And... Um, you know, it's it was Roger Moore's favorite of his Bond movies. It's certainly my favorite of his Bond movies. Um, I wouldn't say you know, it's it's grounded because it's pretty fanciful and spectacular, but it doesn't go over the top in the way that, say, Moonraker does. Um, and, it you know, there's just some really there's a lot of heart to it. I mean, there's a scene where Barbara Box, Major Masova comes up to him and starts, you know, they start trading sort of witty Bond mots. And then he mentioned, you know, she mentions his dead wife and and, and you know, he sort of. Right. takes a step back and she's sensitive about some things yes you know and it's a really solid you know grounded performance from roger moore he's very believable he's very credible mm-hmm. he's funny um and the globe trotting i mean egypt look ne- never looks more beautiful in a movie right. uh, uh you know uh, obviously um the, the, you know all the skiing the at the stuff, beginning uh, Sardinia, opening. i mean it's just uh, it's just amazing the skiing uh, scene right at the beginning is, I mean, probably the most memorable opening to any Bond movie and one of the best songs, too. And Carly Stockton's Nobody Does It Better. Make a great title for a book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Very good, Mark. So let's get into the villains a little bit. Um, what makes a great Bond villain and who do you think were the best ones? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you know, with the villains, I think it's somebody has to be formed. I think if you look at something like Quantum of Solace, despite what a great actor uh, Matthew Almerich is, he doesn't really resonate for people because he's not really physically threatening. He, he you know, his plan is a little Looney Tunes. You don't really understand it. Um, he, he doesn't true. have a menacing henchman. And I think that's a reason why that movie isn't as well regarded as some of the other films. It, you know, obviously, uh, Gert Froby's Goldfinger maybe isn't physically threatening to Bond, but he has a plan. He's super capable. He has a henchman you can't mess with, and he's able to come back at Bond. You know, and Bond says, "Oh, you know, I, I wonder what the club secretary would have to say after Odd Job decapitates the statue." Right. He says, "Nothing. I own the club, Mister Bond." You, know, so <laughs> you can banter with Bond and keep uh, it's great. You know, so he he's a real threat to Bond, and when he captures him, you know, in Kentucky, and it, you know, you're you're really worried about what's going to happen to Bond. So, I mean, that's great. I mean, I love Doctor No. Um, I thought Joseph Wiseman gives a great performance. Uh, um, he's he's really terrific in that. Um, uh, you know the best. You know the best villain. You know I, I missed opportunity was Christopher Walken. He seems like he was born to play a Bond villain, yeah. and yet that movie doesn't really work. Um, obviously, I like a lot of the iterations of Blofeld. It's such a great character. In a way, he was the original Thanos because they keep teasing him, you know, petting the cat. You don't see his face in a couple of movies. And then finally, you know, in, in Infinity War, a.k.a. You Only Live Twice, you meet him, you meet Blofeld. And uh, that's Donald Pleasance, and, and he's great. So um, those are all, you know, terrific villains to me. How did you, uh, how did you work with uh, Edward, and how did you compile the book, and how did you get these sound bites? Well, with Ed, you know, we sort of divided up. He took... 
you know, he took certain chapters, I took certain chapters, you know, I tried to take, I guess, the 70s and 80s, and then we eventually we flip, but, like, I started with the 70s, 80s, I started with the introduction, I started with the end, um, he took, you know, the 60s, and then he took the 90s, um, you know, and then we, we flip and we rewrite each other. Um, you know, we obviously interviewed a ton of people for this book, and then there were a bunch of people in the past that we had interviewed. I, you know, I had talked to Tom Mankiewicz shortly before he died for a piece I was doing for Cinefantastic that never happened. And so, I, you know, I probably had about three hours with him that had never used for anything. So it was such a resource. Um, you know, same thing with Ed. I mean, Ed had spent, you know, been on the set of a lot of Bond movies and used a fraction of that material for freelance gigs that he'd done in the past. So we had access to a ton of material. And then, of course, there were some people who were deceased that we couldn't get a hold of that um, we were able to supplement it with a material that um, – Richard Schenkman uh, was able to give us, which was a super fantastic because we we didn't have you know couldn't obviously Kevin McClory's passed away, you know and and uh, there were one or two other people like that too. So we were really grateful to him, you know, sharing some of his material to sort of fill in some of the holes, uh, you know, where we didn't have people. Okay, you you got some good sound bites, Daniel Craig and uh, and some of the other Bonds. How did how did you get to them? Uh, and also, do these guys, do they, do they know each other? Do they ever appear? Because, you know, you, we've even seen past presidents all standing together for a right. photo, but you don't really see too much with the Bonds. Were they competitive? Yeah. Were they jealous? Were they buddies? Were they respectful of one another? What was your sense yeah, from doing you know, your it's work? It's not like, you know, it's always it's something special about no matter how much you hate some presidents and love some presidents, when they're all standing together, like at a funeral or something, you know, it's always, there's something really special about it, right? With Bond... You know, I think the, most of them have left on pretty bad terms other than Roger Moore, you know, and Timothy Dalton to a certain extent. So you don't really see – and Sean Connery and Roger Moore were friends for a long time, still are, but um, – well, until Roger passed away. But um, you don't really see them together or like bond, any kind of Bond events for like the 50th where all the Bonds, you know, are coming together. It's just not – you know, it's sort of like out of sight, out of mind, like, you know, sort of when, you know, Pierce left under, you know, unpleasant circumstances, you know, he, you know, he got a phone call from them saying, hey, we're going in another direction. Thanks for everything, you know, and he was really, you know, hurt and upset. He didn't think, you know, he was done as Bond, you know, he was usually it's the actor that, you know, right. and it was, you know, Dalton, they handled as well as they could. But even Dalton, you know. Uh, you know, the Broccoli family had wanted to keep Dalton around for another couple of pictures. And it was the studio that's like, he's done, you know, mm -hmm. after License to Kill and all the litigation. And then, you know, they weren't even sure the franchise was viable in the early 90s. They they said, you know, this is your father's show. And, and then we're not even sure kids know who Bond is. And one of the things they were adamant about was recasting uh, Dalton with Pierce. And, you know, the Broccoli's, you know, sort of had to give into that. Um, so there was, you know, so there's not a lot... You know, they don't get together for like Bond reunions and all right. sit there. It wasn't it great playing James Bond. It's not you know, like the Sopranos, right? Yeah. Ill feelings, uh, you know. So um, let's let's just go through how these each the main characters left. So Connery, from what I could take it, uh, what I could tell was he felt like he was under valued and didn't get the money the producers were making all the money and he was kind of done with it because the, the reason i ask this question is I, I always get this anxiety when i see daniel craig read about him and stuff like oh no you know i'd rather get stabbed in the eye than do yeah, another bond wrist, movie yeah and then they throw 30 million at him or, or whatever uh but what what it tell us about how each one of these uh, you kind of did in your last answer but just real qu quickly um, yeah sure you know, connery to lanzaby to uh moore to dalton to Bronson, to Craig. 
Yeah, it's always a fascinating story because they've all left for different reasons. You look at Sean, you know, and Sean saw basically Broccoli and Saltzman owned, you know, like half, you know, they saw half the profits for that. I mean, they were making so much money on the Bond movies. And Sean was getting paid a lot, but he felt like he should be a partner as well. You know, he wasn't getting that kind of money. And, you know, he felt that they didn't value him. And Sean is somebody who feels like he needs to be valued. He needs to be paid what he's worth. And, you know, one of the reasons they were able to get him back for Diamonds Are Forever is they just threw a ton of money at him. And it was really United Artists that did it because um, he wasn't really talking to Broccoli and Saltzman. And so, uh, you know, he said, if United, if you they had treated me the way you, you are, United Artists, maybe I would have stayed. Um, and he knew he had him over a barrel because after he left, after you only have twice. And, and you got to admit, also, he was exhausted because he was doing a picture a year initially, 62 Doctor No, 63 from Russia with Love, 64 Goldfinger. I mean, it's insane. You know, now uh, sequels take three years sometimes, four years, five years between Bond movies. They were doing a Bond movie, a classic Bond movie every year. So for an actor who wanted to stretch his acting muscles and do other things, it was very difficult because these were long and tiring shoots. And by the time he gets to You Only Live Twice in Japan, where he is like the Beatles over there, and they're going crazy and, and you know, following him into bathrooms and he can't have any privacy. He's done. He's checked out. He's not getting paid enough. The shoots go on too long and uh, he's being harassed everywhere he goes. He doesn't want that. So then they, you know, hire Lazenby and then Lazenby gets sold a bill of goods by his, you know, manager. This guy, this, you know, guy uh, who was involved with Radio Caroline and like uh, real sick. He says, oh, James Bond's over. This is the 60s. It's the time of Easy Rider and stuff. And you don't want to be, you know, with this square associated with this square character. So basically, you know, he shows up at a premiere, uh, you know, with a beard and, you know, looking like a hippie and, you know, not like James Bond at all right before the movie opens. So there's no love lost there between the producers or him with them. And he walks away. He, they let him go. And they pull up the Brinks truck to Sean Connery. Mm-hmm. They get him back from a movie. Right. Now it's Roger Moore. Roger Moore was there, you know, for a long time. But the interesting thing about Roger is, you know, he always threatened to leave as a negotiating tactic. Well, I'm done. I think I'm done. My contract's over. And then they offer him more money. And he comes back, you know. And, and arguably he came back one time too many with a view to a kill. But finally he's in his late 50s. And it's like. You know, right. how are you going to bring him back? And even he knew it was over. And he did not like doing a view to a kill. Um, and they hired Timothy Dalton. Timothy Dalton is kind of the first Bond to be shown the door, you know, not because he wants to leave, but because, the you know, that, that was the story at the time. Timothy Dalton decides he's going to leave. But he was really shown the door, you know, and that was sort of a way for him to leave with dignity. And then, um, you know, with Pierce, it's worse because Pierce does the four movies and, um and 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 they basically, after die another day, you know they get the rights to Casino Royale back. They feel they can't do that, you know the the birth of Bond with Pierce because he's done four movies. So they they call him and say you're done. Now there are two sides to that story. Pierce basically says, you know I was shown the door unceremoniously. The producers say that his agents were asking for like forty million dollars and it was outrageous and they weren't going to pay him. You know it really depends on who you believe, right? Um, and maybe the truth lies somewhere in between. Um, and then Daniel Craig comes. He does a couple of movies. Um, Casino Royale is beloved. People don't like Quantum of Solace. Even he doesn't right. like it. Um, does Skyfall, which is even though there, there's some fans that hate it, for the most part, it's considered one of the greats, right? And then um, Spectre, no one likes. Right. And he has that famous uh, comment. 
I'd rather slip my wrist and do another one. But apparently, uh, you know, $3 million and first dollar gross that fixes a lot of bloodletting. And he comes back for one more one more movie. But he, he got pretty beat up physically on this. And he's under the microscope. And I think this is it. He's done. I mean, he's pretty much set. He's done. What about the music, uh, Mark? Um, how, how, how does the music get chosen? And uh, more importantly, how come the Stones have never done a Bond theme? You know, that's a great question. I, I don't know if I have a good answer for you. It seems so obvious, you right. know, the uh, British that, Jagger, you know, right? they would be so perfect or at least have Mick Jagger do it. You know, even if you don't get the, the, the stones, you know, he had a solo career in the 80s, um, such as it was. And uh, it's very interesting because, you know, but they were always never really in touch with like what great music was, because. You know, when Live and Let Die, when um, George Martin sends over a demo of Live and Let Die from Paul McCartney, they're like, hey, this is a good song. Who should we get to sing it? Frank Sinatra or someone? <laughs> and, and, and they're like, no, no. If Paul, if Paul is giving you a song, but he will sing it. And they're like, oh, well, we don't know if we want Paul McCartney. They said, there is no song without Paul McCartney. And so they start, you know, playing it for people. And everybody says, oh, my God, Paul McCartney singing a Bond song is amazing. Right. Then they start to say, we got Paul McCartney. <laughs> you know? It's so funny. They didn't even realize what they had because they were, you know, kind of 40s and 50s. And, you know, just they did not get how what a huge coup it was to get, you know, Paul McCartney. And, of course, that song's been covered a million times. It's one of the best, if not the best, James Bond song. But, you know, and then since then, you know, they've had mixed success chasing the hot young thing like Aha, you know, which was huge in the 80s. Take on me, you know, Living Daylights. Is that a memorable Bond song? Depends who you ask, but it certainly didn't go to the top of the charts. Um, you know, Duran Duran, much more successful. Huge, huge successful in the 80s. Uh, huge band, and, and the, the, the main title is successful. License to Kill, awful. You know, barely memorable. And then you have this... Jones, you know, remember Tom you know, Jones you know, way back. And, and, and uh, you know, White do... Um, uh, Adele. Adele. Uh, Adele is huge. Adele is the biggest yeah. one in a long time. And now Billie Eilish, you right. know, is a hot young thing. Uh, is doing the new bond. Have you heard the new song? I have not. Have you? No, I, I was surprised because I haven't, you know, uh, you know, I got into Post Malone and I've been listening to uh, Cage the Elephant with my son and stuff, but I, I haven't wrapped my head around Billie Eilish yet. And I'm like, I, I don't get it. Uh, it's going to take me a little while. Sorry, I'm a boomer. All right. Huh. So you I, know, it's I, funny for me, Billie Eilish, is, yeah. it's kind of like, you know, he's very depressing. It's very low energy. So I'm very curious to see what she does. You know, there's so many what ifs that we missed. You know, it's like had Amy Winehouse not died, she was going to do Quantum. Like, how great would that have been? Yeah, yeah, been awesome. she was. You know, and talent. then there are a bunch of songs they rejected. You know, there's an Alice Cooper song they rejected, which is awful. But then there was a really great Fear Eyes Only song um, that Blondie did. You know, um, that uh, would have been cool. Although obviously, Sheena Easton's Fear Eyes Only was one of the bigger hits. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, is a wonderful song. How about um, the opening sequences and then the women? Who who is this separate from the current director on the film? Is this a Broccoli thing? How do, how does that get? How does the you, opening you you sequence? Job. You're trying to get the job. You're sending your resume to shoot the opening <laughs> credits <laughs> because it seems yeah, like you know um, that's a, that's a Bond staple. And then you know the movie's the movie, but it seems like there's a whole other thought process that goes into those opening sequences. Yeah, with, with it the, exists completely outside of the actual movie. The directors basically get to say, hey, this is kind of what I'm thinking. But, you know, that stuff's done while the movie is filming. And obviously yeah. for the first bunch of years, it was um, Maurice Binder and then Robert Brownjohn did too. But uh, Maurice Binder became famous for doing these 
um, opening credit sequence that were so memorable. And uh, once he dies, um, you have another guy called, um, oh, my God, I interviewed him for the book. How do I not remember? Oh, well, Cl- Daniel Kleinman, okay. who comes out of advertising, who's fantastic. He does Casino Royale, which is truly inspired yeah. and different. Very good. Quantum Solace is um, Mark Forster's guy, the director. He, he used the MK, another advertising agency. But then Kleinman comes back with his most spectacular one yet, which is um, Skyfall, which is amazing. And, of course, he did the Pierce ones, too. I mean, when he did Goldeneye, because Maurice Binder died, you know, so License to Kill was his last one. Then Kleinman does Goldeneye, which is stunning. And this is kind of at the early, early stages of CGI. So a lot of it is, um, you know, all these mm-hmm. Russian Soviet icons being destroyed. And it's just amazing. Tomorrow Never Dies, it's okay. You know, the world's not enough. But then Casino Royale is really imaginative. Um, and then Skyfall is spectacular. And Inspector mm-hmm. is probably his weakest since Tomorrow Never Dies. But he's such a great guy. It was so great to talk to him. Such interesting insights. And such a big Bond fan. Had a lot to say about Maurice Binder and about... Um, uh, just, uh, you know, the, you know, doing these and how some directors have more to say than others. Right. Uh, and, you know, particularly on Tomorrow Never Dies is the director, uh, Robert, Roger Spotswood, that apparently no one really liked. And he, his input was useless, you know, kind of in, in his uh, estimation. Okay. How about the, uh, the Bond women? There's usually, uh, it seems like there's a Bond girl who's like the good girl. And then there's one that's a little more sexy and sometimes she gets knocked off. What's what's it? Uh, is it a good thing if you're an actress? Is this a good springboard? Are you forever labeled as the Bond girl, or what, what's your take yeah. and your personal take on the whole Bond girl thing? Well, I think it's evolved because I think in the '60s, basically they only wanted to cast gorgeous women, and then they would dub them whether they could act or not. I mean, Ursula Andress, you know, is dubbed, but who remembers how she sounded, right? right. You know, it's <laughs> like, and then you have uh, Danielle Bianchi, who also is dubbed and one of my favorites, and Claudine Auger in Thunderball, who probably is my favorite Bond girl, and she she's dubbed as well. So a lot, and then you only have twice the two women in that. Uh, you know, Aki is is you know. There's a little, so then they're only concerned really about how these women look. Now in the '70s, it kind of they're still. You know, you have uh, at least they stopped being dubbed. That you like Jill St. John, Jill St. John, very right, good yeah. in Donna Wood, right, right? But they're still, even though she's a smuggler and a uh, a jewel thief and all this stuff, still she's you know eye candy, right? I mean, you know, she's wearing a bikini most of the time, and you know that's a nice little nothing you have on when he first meets her. Um, it, it, you start to see more, and then Britt Eklund, who's probably one of the worst of the Bond girls and uh, Golden Gun. But you know, then with Barbara Bach, you know, she is Agent Triple X. She's she's a killer. She's his opposite number in the right. KGB. And uh, so now women are too. starting to become mm-hmm. stronger characters, right? Um, you know, and so uh, you know, I look, I love Barbara. Who doesn't love Barbara Bach? I mean, she's married to Ringo Starr. She's gorgeous. She's, she's you know, she's great. Um, and then you have Lois Charles and Moonraker, who's an astronaut. So theoretically, you know, they're getting a little more agency, as kids okay. say. And uh, and then and then you get the Fear Eyes Only, also another strong uh, female character. But it's really now, in, more recently, where I think being a Bond girl is not necessarily something that you know is like, oh, you were Bond girl, and then because Holly Berry. Who right. had won an Oscar comes in and is a Bond girl. Eva Green's career is certainly not help hurt. If anything, it's helped by playing a Bond girl, and she's fantastic. You know, Olga Korienko, it didn't hurt or help really. Um, you know, so uh, I think that um, you know the, the days of it being something that hurts your career 
which it did early on, I think, because you were just considered eye candy and not necessarily a great act, has has changed. So I think it, it definitely has you know evolved with the times, and the, the roles have evolved where they're much stronger characters, much more empowered, um, you know, and 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 basically don't tolerate um, Bond because even though Bond doesn't evolve, he's a sexist, misogynist dinosaur and always would is and always should be. You know, the women call him out on it, which is the difference now. Okay. Um, our special guest on Guys Guys Radio is Mark A. Altman. He wrote this book called Nobody Does It Better, The Complete, Uncensored, Unauthorized Oral History of James Bond. His writing partner is Edward Gross. Just a couple more questions. Mark, you've been fantastic. When you were working on this book and learning about the whole history of James Bond, what was the, what's something that stood out like, wow, I never thought or expected that? Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of things. I mean, you know, for me personally, one of the most fun interviews was talking to Woody Allen about Casino Royale, uh, Casino Royale 67, you know, which was, you know, a disastrous movie creatively, although it was fairly successful. And, you know, it's a movie that, you know, Woody's kind of, you know, totally embarrassed by. So I was amazed that he talked to me. So from a personal perspective, that was interesting. From stuff I learned about Bond, um, certainly the fact that after License to Kill didn't do well, that the studio had lost faith in Bond so much that they weren't even sure they wanted to make another Bond and that they kind of internally, you know, sort of gave GoldenEye a very low budget because they weren't convinced that anyone would go see it. And it was a combination of a brilliant marketing campaign and the success of the Nintendo video game that really introduced Bond to a whole new audience, of y- a younger audience, because there was this feeling that Bond was something, you know, for boomers and the high end of Gen X and that everyone else didn't care. And, you know, thankfully, they were either proved wrong or GoldenEye brought in a lot of new fans. Mm-hmm. What do you see, Mark, as the template for a Bond movie? And how has that been extrapolated across Hollywood movies? Yeah, well, you know, what's great about Bond movies, even to this day, is generally they're very they're, in terms of the stunt work. And it, it tends to be stuff that they can do for real, which is something that Mission Impossible obviously ran with as well. You know, rather than just doing things strictly in CGI, they want stuff that are physically possible, even though, you know, more and more it's enhanced by CG. Look at that brilliant parkour scene at the beginning of Casino Royale. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, it's enhanced by CG, but you wouldn't know it. It's 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 a lot, a lot of it's being done for real, which makes it grounded and believable, even as you know, crazy as everything that's going on. Right. I think it's one of the things. Things people love about the Daniel Craig movies, they believe Daniel Craig can do this. Because unlike you know Roger Moore, where he had his sixteen stuntmen, you know you knew it wasn't Daniel Craig. It's like you know insert stuntman here, Daniel right. Craig. You really feel like he's doing this, even if he's not. And um, even I though he doesn't, that, he doesn't tiptoe over crocodiles, though. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't <laughs> tiptoe over crocodiles. That's for sure. Um, you will, trespassers will be eaten. But he, uh, he. Um, I think that you know what, what's great is that. There was a while there where Bond was sort of floundering and you had stuff like Born Identity and Mission Impossible that stole its thunder. And it struggled to find its own identity because, you know, Quantum of Solace sort of became a Born Identity ripoff in a way. And 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 then but then, you know, Bond starts to find itself again, you know, with Skyfall. And it realized this is what we do. This is what it is. And, uh, you know, it's still, you know, everybody's trying to knock off the king. Because even though these other great action franchises, there's a reason that Bond has been around for 50 plus years and probably will be for another 50. Okay, last question. And you've been fantastic. I love it when I get a guest on the show who is very competent in his product and also very (laughs) conversational. So thank you so much, Mark. No problem. Truly, truly, you're a guy's guy, too. So I love that. Um, 
what's tell us anything you can about the new movie no time to die and then what's next in terms of who's the next james bond just from your own insights yeah you know um look like a lot of people i don't know much about no time to die i partially it's because i don't want to know you know it's kind of like you know, I've had opportunities to find out more, but it's like there's nothing like walking into a Bond movie and knowing nothing about it, like when you're a kid and yep. being like, just, oh, my God, this is so cool. Like everybody, I saw the trailer and thought the trailer was phenomenal. Very, very well done. You know, and I know all about the problems they had, you know, and Danny Boyle walking away and Phoebe Waller-Bridge coming in to do a polish and stuff. But, you know, I always go in with any movie, no matter what I've heard, hoping it'll be great, you know, until it's not. You know, and, and, and I always hope for the best. You know, I'm not somebody who goes in all cynical thinking, you know, and, and I, you know, there are, I certainly have been Bond movies where I went in with that attitude and walked out like that was awful. Right. Mm-hmm. But I, I think from everything we've seen, hopefully they leave it all in the field. And it's a great swan song for Daniel Craig. Uh, I, I really think next? based on the trailer, you know, at least it looks great. But then the Spectre trailer was great. And that movie right. is not very good. Any sense of uh, who's been the, the rumblings about who's next? I don't think they really started thinking about that. I mean, there are two people in the studio who are going to make the decision, and that's Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson, who are, you know, the kids of um, of, of Albert Broccoli and, and Dana Broccoli. And, uh, you know, the thing is, it's tough because they've been very smart in the past where they tried not to imitate themselves. A lot of people are saying, oh, it should be Henry Cavill. Henry Cavill is sort of the Daniel Craig, but not as good mode, right? So do you go with, um, somebody like Tom Hiddleston, who's right. like more in the Roger Moore vein, who's so great in the Night Manager, who maybe isn't physically right. But yeah, he's, he's terrific. Something in that. going on mm-hmm. in the head, yeah. you know, where where it's like a more of a Roger Moore or Pierce kind of thing, um, or is it going to be somebody who's at Juilliard right now, or the Royal Academy is Shakespearean right. gotcha. you know, that we don't even know who it is, which Got is it. fine with me, you know, or they feel they got to cast the name, you know, because that was the whole time in the in the seventies. You know, after Lazenby doesn't work out, where they're thinking Burt Reynolds, you know, thinking James Brolin, you know, all these these names who are totally wrong, who weren't even British. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'd be very interesting to see where they end up. I just hope that they don't get stymied and hung up and this becomes this four or five year thing you know, where they can't decide what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one thing that frustrates me about the Bond movies, going back to where we started this conversation was they were doing these every year, and then it became every two years, and it was like something you could count on. And now it takes so long between Bond movies, and it shouldn't. If there's one franchise you know you're going to be sequelizing, why they're not developing multiple scripts and getting right. ahead on this, and why you know a movie comes out, they're exhausted for six months, they Great start point. developing it, and then five years later, the movie comes. And I, I, I always say, you know, if, if a movie comes out every year, you're a lot less... Um, demanding on it then if you've been waiting five years the bar is that much higher Mm -hmm. it better be good because i've been waiting five years for this yeah the thing that's amazing to me about the whole franchise is as i'm reading your book and then thinking about all the different films there's so many there's a lot of cooks that could have spoiled the broth yet somehow every bond movie has kind of a life of its own and still fits in somehow some are better than others of course as to be expected but these could be really messy because when you have so many different points of view and so many changes made with directors pulled out this and that, I know it happens in Hollywood all the time, but particularly for a franchise where it, you know, in some ways it ha- there has to be a, a real template that's, that's respected. Um, there's been a lot of different players going in and out of this franchise, yet the product lives on it. I think that's the strength of 
Ian Fleming's writing, the original character, and just there's good stuff to work with. And I think also the fact that it's a family business, I think the the quality, you know, whether you love them or don't, you know, the Broccoli's have maintained a certain quality that they, you know, stand for pat against the studio. They haven't always made the right decisions, but I think they've, they've helped ensure quality control and that the franchise doesn't become something that it isn't and doesn't get overexploited. And what I love is no matter how bad or good a Bond movie is, it's somebody's favorite. Yep. You know, you could go through every movie, movies that we can't stand, and someone's going to say, that's my favorite Bond movie. And movies mm-hmm. that we love, that's my least favorite. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, I love Daniel Craig. There are a ton of people out there can't stand Daniel Craig. You yeah. know, I love Roger Moore. There are a ton of people who can't stand Roger Moore. You know, and okay. then there are people who think Timothy Dalton's the best Bond. And I don't dislike Timothy. He's certainly not my top tier. So it's like, that's what makes horse racing. And that's what we tried to capture in the book. The mm-hmm. sense of, you know... The, the the kind of conversations you have with your friends about this stuff. If you sat down and talked about Bond for, you know, eight hours, this is the conversation you might have. And, you know, hopefully we've, we've done justice to that. We pulled in a bunch of people who worked on all these movies. I say, you know, the great thing about the oral history format, it's like the best dinner party in the world. You're sitting with like 500 people who worked on all these movies and just talking about it. And yeah. they're getting more and more drunk and they start saying more and more things they shouldn't. And that's what makes these books so much fun. No, the book is fantastic. Nobody does it better. The complete uncensored, unauthorized oral history of James Bond by Mark A. Altman and Edward Gross. It's a lot of fun. This is a fun discussion, and the book is a lot of fun because you can read it from cover to cover straight through, or you can just flip around. And I did that, and I had a blast reading it. So great job, Mark. And thank, thank you. you so much for being on Guys Guys Radio. There's also the audio book if people want it for their okay. commute, which is terrific. They got a bunch of Brits. It was so great. We auditioned, you know, we actually sent us for our approval, and we're like, Brits, you got to hire Brits for, for the audio book. So, yeah, you have a website? Um, you know, it's like Audible and all that okay. stuff. So, okay. you know, go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble or any of these got places. It. They have the book, the audio book, the Kindle book, the, you know, the okay. audio is all, the, then, all this stuff. And Mark's other books, Slayers and Vampires. And so say we all. And what was the Star Trek book? The Star Trek book was the two volume, uh, 50 year mission, oral history of, of Star Trek. I'm very, very proud of those books okay. as well. They were, you know, probably you know, as I say, uh, you know, uh, brilliantly reviewed, but the best move books about Star Trek since the making of Star Trek. So if you're a Star Trek fan, you should check it, you know, check out those books. Awesome. Your mission. All right. Guys, Guys Radio with Mark A. Altman. Thank you so much. You really killed it today. I appreciate <laughs> Thanks, it. Robert. Thanks for having me. Robert Manny's The Guys, Guys Guide to Love is a fast-paced tale of flawed men and savvy women competing for love, sex, power, and money in the city where they play for keeps. It's the men's successor to Sex in the City. The Guys, Guys Guide to Love is a sexy romp through the fast-moving, high-stakes world of Madison Avenue. Available now on Amazon and wherever books are sold. That was Mark Altman on Guys Guys Radio talking about James Bond, the ultimate secret agent 007. Wow. So what did we learn? Well, we learned that there's a whole community around James Bond. It's a franchise. It's a $7 billion business. That's the gross of all of James Bond films combined. Absolutely amazing. And it's it's really the template and the source material, if you will, for in my opinion, the Mission Impossible and uh, a lot of other uh, the movie franchises that are around now, everybody kind of nicks a little bit from James Bond. Who was your favorite James Bond? For me, I agree with the character who played, the, the actor who played Q. He said in the book, in Mark Altman's book, 
that the first James Bond you see is usually your favorite. So mine was Sean Connery, but I also think that Daniel Craig did a, does a wonderful job because if you read any of the James Bond books, he comes across more as kind of a rugged action guy. You don't really learn too much about who James Bond is behind, between the ears, but he moves and he's in action a lot, and he's a very interesting character. So my favorites are Connery and Craig, although I thought Roger Moore, when he started out, he, he added something special to it. And then it got a little bit pastiche when he went into some of the uh, films like View to a Kill and uh, Octopussy, which were just, you know, I was laughing when I watched those. Okay, Guys Guys Radio. We're on KCAA Radio every Wednesday evening at 8 p.m. Pacific Time. 102.3, 106.5 FM, 10.50 AM. The show rebroadcasts every Sunday at 2 p.m. here in sunny Southern California. Our podcast drops every Thursday, and we're on iHeartRadio, Spotify, iTunes, slash Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spreaker, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, CastBox, you can stream it on kcaa.com. We're on Blog Talk Radio and also my website, robertmanny.com. You can stream from there. On my website, robertmanny.com, you'll find out a lot about the whole Guys Guys movement, the source material being my novel, The Guys Guys Guide to Love, critically acclaimed and called by iconic 20th century author Dan Wakefield as the male successor to Sex in the City. It's about two dudes in advertising competing for love, sex, power, and money in the city where they play for keeps. NYC. Hey, you know what? I know nowadays two dudes rambling around in the city doesn't sound like very PC, but the women who've read my book, and most of the readers are women, all love the female characters. They love the two male characters, and they see them as evolved. And it's a story of awareness and redemption and realization and it's a lot of fun and it's a romp and there's a lot of sex so i hope you'll check it out Um, you can get three free chapters through my website but also you can pick up the book on amazon if you want to support guys guys radio i would ask you to consider rating reviewing and subscribing on apple Podcasts slash itunes you can follow me your host robert manny on facebook twitter all over social media instagram youtube and I just found out that we're ranked in the top 100 in our category of podcasts in Australia. So that's kind of nice news. We're going to keep growing and growing and growing here on Guys Guys Radio. So as always, I thank my listeners. I thank my guests. And as I always like to say, we'll see you next week. And guys, guys, finish first.